You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Rent growth came to a halt in September of 2018 on a national level, according to Rent Cafe, making the first period of negative growth month over month since February. However, the $1,400 national average rent is still 3% higher than this time last year. So as landlords, should we be concerned? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Well Show. On today's episode, we'll look at where rents are headed in 2019 and beyond. Are we overbuilt on the high end? Where's the most demand today? And should we be concerned about a potential economic slowdown? Our guest today, Doug Ressler, is Senior Analyst and Director of Business Intelligence at Yardy Matrix. And Rent Cafe is a nationwide apartment search website and part of Yardy. The website provides research, insights, and in-depth analysis on the real estate market. So I'm excited to share the most recent data with you. So Doug, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you, Kathy. Glad to be here. Our listeners are largely landlords, so your data is of great interest to them. (laughs) We have a lot of people who own single-family homes and certainly those who own multifamily. And I know that your company does regular reports. Are you seeing any difference between the rent growth in single-family units versus multi? Uh, What we see is with the multi right now is the rent growth is a little bit tighter managed with uh, landlords in terms of larger properties. Uh, Single-family properties are a little bit uh, less organized, less controlled. So we do see a lot of data noise in terms of what people ask for. And at the same time, it's hard to vet a lot of the information. In other words, to verify it because some of it is off the grid. That's what we call the gray market. Mm. So how do you collect your data for single family versus multi? We go out through our sister division. We use a lot of the information that they provide. In addition, we also access third parties in terms of census, things like that. Okay. So there was a slowdown in September on rent growth. What's going on? Has that changed? Has it picked up? Well, it's certainly not going to be as we're projecting right now. We see another year of what we would call moderate rent growth increases, about two and a half points, three points nationally. We see the strongest is going to be in the south and the west, uh, where there's a lot of in-migration, non-native population movement, and also uh, job growth. We also see that uh, some of the greatest growth is going to come from the fast-growing tertiary markets. Some of those are Tacoma, Colorado Springs, Reno. And right now, the large metros, you know, are going to continue at the national rate, like I said, but we don't see any large meltdowns in terms of negative growth for any of the larger metros. And why is that? Would you attribute it to rising home prices and more difficulty for people to buy a home so they're forced to rent? Or Yeah, it's a combination of factors. One of the things that we see is that You know, the median income in terms of a lot of service industry jobs just does not qualify you to be able to buy a house. Uh, The lack of availability of supply and demand, it gets back to basic X and Y economics in terms of supply and demand. So we see that a lot of the demand that is rising is going to be in the workforce or the affordable areas. And so that's where we see a a large percent. Now, when you see the new supply that developers are building, they're building upper end supply. So what you have is a disconnect between the supply and demand. We also see, especially in uh, like Northern Virginia as a prime result, 
recently, Amazon talked about going in there with their office and made it all public. And one of the things that we see in that area particularly is the need for larger family homes. In other words, there's more family members that need to uh, rent. So ergo, they want larger properties. And a lot of the properties being built today are for singles, lofts, that type of thing. They don't really accommodate larger families. And so a lot of our data is supportive that there's a big demand for that. We've also seen through our data that once they get a large family unit, they continue to renew. So the duration supports the demand that they are in high demand, they're in low supply, and once you get a long duration in terms of renewal. Now, are you saying because maybe parents are moving in with their kids or families are having more children or kids are moving home? I mean, what? I don't think it's a birth rate thing. What you see is you see a lot of people that are combining families, certainly. You know, a lot of people that uh, were displaced during the 2008 meltdown, and I think uh, the Fed just came out with a number not too long ago that talked about a larger percentage, uh, 60% of those people still cannot afford to buy homes. So they've been displaced and they're looking at continuing to rent. Uh, you also see millennials or those type of people that don't really see the need to own a home. They want to be close to a diverse economic, do not want to have the cumbersome burden of taxes and things like that. They want to have things that are taking care of things for them so they have other lifestyles. So it's really a combination. And then, of course, you have the boomers who no longer want the house and uh, want to combine. And we've even seen in West Palm where, you know, you've had boomers that are doing co-living, if you will, uh, where you have not just one family unit, but multiple family units that are living together. Like different families, like different couples living together or... Yeah, one one may have lost a spouse, you know, they want to move in, they want to share the rent expense and things like that. So you see this, what's called co-living now. Interesting. You see it in large urban areas among the millennials like downtown Manhattan, things like that. There's uh, co-living or D.C. But we're also seeing it. In, I mean, it's not just the age that dictates it. It's also the situation of uh, the family unit. Yeah, my youngest daughter, who's 19 and co-living in college, which is pretty normal, she says, you know, Mom, I, don't, I think I want to do this forever. It's just so much fun to live with friends. And I, you know, so there may be a different mentality with younger people, although I probably felt that way when I was 19, too. It all changes when you start having a family. Yeah, there, there are changing uh, viewpoints, that's for sure. So are you seeing any change in rent growth between affordable housing and the more expensive? In other words, are prices coming down on the higher end for rents and increasing on the lower end? Yeah, we see a little bit of coming down on the higher end. And again, it's it's dependent upon the market. But from a general statement, we see a little bit less robust growth in the upper end. Uh, but the affordable living is really, uh, it's very dynamic. It is going through the roof because there's just, nobody's building for that supply. And again, it gets back to economic supply and demand that says, you know, if there's a growing and larger demand for it and nobody's building it, you know, you're going to have the ability to be able to raise rent. Now, one of the things that rears its ugly head is policy and things like that. You've heard about California and what they're going through in terms of rent control and things like that. They're not the only state to be doing that. But at the same time, you see other areas in the United States that have similar types of problems, lack of affordability, a way to control some rent growth. Like San Francisco has a degree of rent control. New York City has a degree of rent control. All those are ways to react to 
trying to maintain for the larger demand, which is workforce and affordability, to be able to maintain that those folks can afford to live and purchase housing. Now, do you see that as more of a trend moving forward as some areas that have never really seen this kind of rent growth start to see the uh, lack of affordability that those of us in California have experienced for decades? I mean, do you think you'll see Mm -hmm. more cities adopting rent control? I think what you'll see is people that are much more willing to listen. It's not going to be solved by government alone. It's not going to be solved by business alone. and It's not going to be solved by the renters alone. What you really have to do is and see is all the groups coming together to be able to work together to um, make a viable situation. Seattle, I think it was just in uh, the newspaper that uh, Microsoft is going to put out $500 million for housing in King County uh, to be able to accommodate the growing demand for affordability and housing. So I think what you see is a combination of policy, a combination of business, and a combination of the advocates for rent control working together in a consortium to be able to affect resolution. Now, I have heard that cities like Dallas and Seattle have become overbuilt with multifamily, or there's at least a lot of units coming online, and that could affect rent growth. Are you seeing that now? Our data does not reflect that. I know that there's been a couple articles written about you know, double-digit vacancy in the Seattle-King County area and things like that. We have not seen that. Uh, And we pride ourselves on our data integrity. So I would say that, no, I have not seen that. What you see is a push for density. In fact, uh, Seattle's going through a period right now where they're having uh, zoning hearings to rezone a lot of the downtown for higher-density type of apartments. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad we're getting our news from you then. (laughs) Uh, So which cities are you seeing the the highest rent growth? Uh, Well, high rent growth right now, high rent growth meaning over the past year? Yes. Okay. Well, some of the ones that we see are like Salt Lake City, Tacoma, Colorado Springs. We're seeing it fast growing tertiary markets. They also act as uh, hubs for tech centers. Reno, of course, has the uh, the Tesla battery. It also has Google, things like that. So we're seeing, and Salt Lake City, has had, over the course of the since I think uh, 2012, has one of the highest growth rates in terms of employment of any city in the nation. So uh, one of the things, again, too, that you see is a combination of the local policy ordinance fathers and things like that working to continue to accelerate employment, especially high-end tech employment in those areas. And that's why we see that those growths are continuing because Salt Lake right now suffers from a lack of supply and you see that they're trying to accommodate that. Yeah. What kind of solutions do you see coming around the bend? I mean, we talk about tiny homes, and but builders have got to bring on more affordable housing and you know, apartments. I suppose more supply would bring down or soften rents. But do, do you see any cities being able to solve this problem? Oh, yeah. You, I mean, you see cities all the time. I mean, I think Seattle is probably one of the leading advocates. Sacramento right now is working towards solving the issue. And uh, you see people like Jim Lofgren and the mayor in Sacramento that work very diligently with all the business units and things like that that are trying to come up with a solution that will affect the affordability issue. If you go down to Sacramento and you walk down the Sacramento River, you see a lot of homeless people. And the mayor recognizes the fact that in affordability, sometimes you're one step away from homelessness and they want to prevent that. So 
There are cities like Sacramento, there are cities like San Diego, Seattle, that are working uh, very diligently at the local level to be able to affect a solution. And what kinds of solutions is Sacramento looking at? They're looking at a way to go in and modify the infill products that are being built so that they can allow for a higher percentage of what we call micro units or smaller units so that they can get affordability funding from the, you know, Freddie and Fannie. And Freddie and Fannie, you know, recognizes the issue. So uh, one of the things that they're looking at is to be able to affect in terms of development a solution that fits all. So if I go in and I say, well, if I have 12% or 20% of my units that are affordable, you know, I'm probably going to get better loan terms than if I didn't have that. So if I can put more micro units and things like that that are nice units and things like that into my equation, I can get to the development funding and I can pencil it out in terms of the return. Great news. Do you see the demand for single-family rentals increasing over multifamily, or are they just both increasing? They're both increasing right now. And again, it's hard with the shadow market to be able to vet some of the data. So what advice would you give to landlords today? Should landlords just sit tight and then keep collecting rents? Or should they be repositioning, selling in markets that aren't growing as fast or where there's not as much demand and and exchanging into other markets? I mean, any advice you'd give to our listeners? Well, we see a good demand for lifestyle-rated assets that continue to push rents with the rentals uh, representing the bulk of household creation in a lot of cities. We know that renters are already cost-burdened, so they're facing even more strain. So the affordability issue continues. So we expect to see more suburban development in 2019, especially with infill products being built. Sponsors will prefer suburban locations where they have strong school districts, come with less cost, shorter time frame to develop, things like that. So Atlanta is probably a pretty good example of that where when I say suburban, I'm not talking, you know, 50 or 60 miles north of downtown Atlanta. What you see is close proximity around the hub. Uh, to the the urban cores, but nevertheless, they're going to build in what we call an urban area as opposed to an urban core, suburban area, uh, because they can get uh, better rates and things like that. So we see that continuing. We see that kind of movement continuing. So if you're a landlord, look at that. Also, what people are doing today is uh, they're looking at amenities, not the amenities that are affixed to a property per se or, or a unit, but more what they call, um, the term I think they use is these unique amenities. They're service as an amenity where like if you were in an apartment and things like that and you want concert, more like a hotel type of an arrangement where if you want concierge service, you want somebody to walk your dog, you want somebody to dry clean your clothes, schedule reservations, things like that. A lot of landlords are looking at that, what they call f- full service type of amenities, especially in Minneapolis. There's a full-service concierge type of thing that's occurring in the Minneapolis markets where people actually look for that to rent an apartment and say, well, I want you to take care of certain things, me personally. Not, you know, the guy living next to me may not have that, but I want it. And so you see a lot of that amenitization being done to be able to attract renters and also at the same time fulfill the demand that's in the market. Airbnb, How do you see that affecting long-term rents? Do you think we'll see more Airbnb rentals or more restrictions on people trying to do it? I think you'll see both. Uh, You know, that's kind of a non-answer, but I think at the (laughs) same time, you see a lot of people that are trying to control it from 
a regulatory standpoint, like New York City, San Francisco, things like that. But at the same time, in visiting those cities and talking to people, you see a lot of people that are they're getting around the, the issue. They're just not reporting it. And so it's occurring. It's just that it's not it's not real public. So I think that it fits in demand, it fits a need, and I think that's why it will continue to grow. Yeah, agreed. And and that could again cause more of an issue in the tightening of rents as more homes are on the market for short term rental versus long term. Most definitely. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Doug, for joining us here on the Real Wealth Show. It's been very valuable. You bet, Kathy. Thank you. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Well Show. If you want to find out more about rental demand in 13 of our favorite markets and meet the teams in those areas, they can find you a discounted property, renovate it for you, place a qualified tenant, and offer ongoing management. Consider joining us February 9th at our third annual East Coast Property Showcase in Tampa, Florida. I'll be there along with our Real Wealth Network team and my co-CEO, Rich Fetke, who will be giving some tips on how to be a more focused investor in 2019. And I will be giving a little bit more of my 2019 housing market forecast. You can get all the details at realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Learn tab. That's realwealthshow.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and I hope to see you in February. Bye-bye.